the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. The Israelites were being prepared to enter the land promised to them. They were reminded to love God with their whole being and to put Him first in every aspect of life. Moses had addressed worshiping God in the new land through their festivals and ceremonies. He encouraged the civil and spiritual leaders to follow God even if they stood alone among their brethren. We see how God ensures people's property boundaries remain unchanged and how to go about war with other nations as we join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 14. With all this talk of expanding borders, Moses reminds people here in verse 14 not to mess with any already established inheritance borders. When you give a land to a family, you don't mess with that as your borders expand. Verse 14, he says, You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in your inheritance, which you shall inherit in the land that the Lord your God gives you to possess it. You shall not remove means don't displace or take away. Now, we, of course, we have our, our fancy construction things, right? The architect maps. There's a specific word, and that's dropped out of my mind. And, you know, when I bought my home, they gave one to me in the big, huge, massive book they call your, you know, your mortgage paperwork. After you sign all the paperwork, you can't use your hand anymore. They gave it to us and had my plot there, my plot. This is my plot. You know, and we discovered on our first home that our neighbor was like three inches on our plot. I sued him. No, I'm kidding. I didn't do any of that. But you learn what your land is. They didn't have anything like that back then. So they would have these landmarks, these like stones or certain things that would stick out. And that's how they would determine what was the borders of their land. So if you were kind of looking and going, man, he's got this land and they really, the crops just come out of there really well. And you know, I don't see why I got the land. I got the rocky land and you know, my, my cows don't like the grass as much. So they don't live as long as his cows. You couldn't come out in the middle of the night, you know, and your sons and go move the big old rock and be like, <laughs> move it over and then come out the next day like, hey, neighbor. <laughs> you couldn't do that. You weren't allowed to do that. And so with all this talk of expanding borders, he says, make sure you respect the existing borders that are there. One of the challenges that the church has faced over the years is how do we take God's truths into new territory? How do we do that? With new technology, with changing culture, is it okay to move the boundaries that God has established in the past? The consistent teaching of scripture is no. Yet culture changes, yet technology changes, but God's principles, God's commands, they do not change. Never mess with God's clearly established truths. Is it okay to use drums in worship? Well, yeah, the Bible doesn't say otherwise. But is it okay to sing songs to Dagon or Mammon or anybody else? The obvious answer is no. So we will not be singing any Sinatra this week or next week. Never mess with God's clearly established truths, even if others accuse you of being outdated, simple-minded, 
or old-fashioned. Now, God does want to expand our borders, which means we need to step out in faith into new territory, but we need to always do so with the foundation of revealed truth. This is basic stuff, but let's say a murder or manslaughter situation, you don't know which one it is, comes up. How do you determine guilt or innocence? And how should Israel deal with it when you discover someone's made a false accusation? Well, look at verse 15. It says, now one witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or in any sin that he sins at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses, which that would then be the preferred method, three witnesses at least, shall the matter be established. So the idea here is if you're going to determine guilt or innocence, it cannot be my word against your word. It requires two witnesses at least, but they would like to have three to establish guilt. When that's going on, then how do you handle conflicting testimonies? Well, verse 16. Now, if a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. Obviously, if you have two different stories, someone's not telling the truth, right? Someone's lying. And now if it's the defendant, well, then you just carry out the law. If they say, no, I didn't murder him, there's no malintent, and then you can see that it is, well, then you just carry out the law. But if it's the accuser, they're lying. And how do you handle that? Well, it says here, then both of them will go before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. Now, this is probably the same court of appeals that Moses set up in Deuteronomy 17, where there was only one court of appeal in Israel. Everything would go there and it would be wherever the tabernacle was. And so you would go there and verse 18 says, the judges shall make diligent inquisition. They shall perform a thorough investigation. And behold, if the witness be a false witness and has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. So shall you put the evil away from among you. And then those which remain, those who you know, are left alive, they shall hear and fear and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And your eye shall not pity here. Again, doesn't mean don't have compassion upon the person as you're pronouncing judgment, but it means you can't spare them. But life shall go for life. If you wanted death, then you take his life if he lied about it. If it was an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. So the penalty for perjury is pretty stiff. And now why is it stiff? Well, it says in verse 20 that those who are still alive, they will hear about this judgment and they will fear and they won't do the same thing. And that's the goal of all civil judgments, to punish evildoers and therefore stop others from doing the same thing because they'll see what happens when you do that. That means when a nation fails to punish the evil within it, evil will increase. That is a truth. If a nation fails to punish the evil within itself, evil will increase. If your body can't take care of the stuff in your body that's not good, if it can't fight it, what happens to you? You eventually die. And that's when we see someone, we call them ill, or we say they're in poor health, because their body can no longer fight the thing that's attacking itself. And it's no different for a church. If a church can't deal with the problems in itself, then it's going to eventually die. It's not healthy. If a nation can't deal with the evil that's within itself, it's going to die because evil will increase. The virus will spread. The evil will spread. What's interesting here is verse 21 is a phrase we're probably pretty familiar with, right? An eye for an eye, hand for a hand, right? Tooth for tooth, life for life. Verse 21 here in context was only to be applied to the area of false witnesses enforced by the civil authorities. How do we normally hear eye for eye, tooth for tooth, right? We hear it in the realm of personal vengeance. Eye for an eye, right? And then it's some famous line in a movie or something like that, you know, some gangster movie or something like that. 
That is not the intent of that passage from Scripture. Israel, in fact, in their day, wrongly applied it to personal vengeance, which I find absolutely fascinating when it comes in a chapter meant to tone down personal vengeance. Isn't that interesting? And yet that's how they applied it in their day, in Jesus' day. So what we find very interesting, you know, people will accuse Jesus, they'll say, well, Jesus, you know, he contradicts the law. He contradicts Moses. No, he doesn't. Half the times he says, well, you have heard it said, and then he quotes Moses, but he's not quoting Moses. He's quoting how they understand Moses. He's using it in the light of how they understood Moses, and he's telling them, you don't understand him at all. And then in some cases, he goes before Moses and establishes God's true principle. And in the issue here in Matthew 5, 38, he says, you have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say unto you that you do not resist evil. The word there, evil, it means a person who's done you wrong. But whosoever shall smite you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If any man will sue you at the law and take away your coat, let him have your cloak also. Whosoever shall compel you to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him that asks of you, and from him that would borrow of you, do not turn him away. In the area of personal vengeance, Jesus is saying that verse doesn't apply. (laughs) It's not about personal vengeance. When someone does wrong to you, you be good to them. Now, Paul confirms this principle in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, when he says, do not repay any man evil for evil. That's Romans 12, 17. And then, of course, just a few verses later, he says, dearly beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, what are we supposed to do? Laugh at him while he can't find food. No, it says feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire on his head. You really get him by being good to him. Is that what that means? No. Back then, they would always carry coal. You didn't just have coal sitting in the home. They didn't have electric ovens. They didn't have any of that stuff. So fire was a a prized thing. You wouldn't keep live coals in the house because that would be a danger to the home. So what you would do is you would go outside, and of course, you couldn't just walk in with live coals in your hand, and so you would carry live coals on on a basket on your head or on your shoulder or something like that. So the idea, again, in doing so, for you to do that for someone, to do them a favor and scoop up some live coals while they got all this stuff they're carrying and put it on their head was a blessing. It's funny how we Americanize and Westernize some of the statements of Scripture, and we're like, yeah, you can heap coals of fire judgment on his head by being good to him. That's not at all what the Lord's saying. He's saying, by doing that, you're being a blessing to them. You are being good to them. You're being like Jesus. For he closes the chapter of 12 in Romans by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, I love it because that's a command. It's not a suggestion. It says you must not be overcome by evil. You must not let evil win, but you defeat evil by being good. So this idea here was for civil authorities to know how to handle civil cases. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth had nothing to do with personal vengeance. We move to chapter 20, and we see the principles for warfare. He says, now, when you go out to battle against your enemies, and you see horses and chariots, and a people that are more than you, a bigger army, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, what's interesting here is this is each individual Israeli soldier's responsibility. This was every soldier's responsibility. When you went out to fight and you saw horses and chariots, which are the ancient equivalent of a tank, they got tons of tanks out there and you're just this little soldier with a pea shooter. And when you see that and the armies outnumber you, you must not fear. Be not afraid. Why? For the Lord your God is with you. 
which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He defeated Egypt and you weren't even soldiers back then. He didn't even need any of you to defeat the army of Egypt. He drowned them all in the Red Sea himself. You just trust the Lord. Don't be afraid. Why is fear bad? I mean, fear is a good thing. Like when that thing happened to us, you know, I was scared, but triggered the fight mentality in me, you know, to protect my family. And I don't own a gun, but I own medieval weaponry and I had some of it, all right? And I was about to get medieval on somebody if they got through the door, all right? which I think would be far more frightening than a gun, but maybe that's just me. There is a part where fear does fortify us. God designed us to have a reaction where you see a, see a car coming, you go, oh, and you get out of the way. There's nothing evil about that. But when we let fear dominate us and cow us, that is bad. And particularly, fear of man is a trap of the enemy designed to make us bolt in the wrong direction. Or being afraid of what God might do to me when I'm his child, that is also, again, the enemy tries to make me afraid of God, so I'll bolt in the wrong direction. I won't go toward God, but I'll stay away from him. When we're afraid of what God will do to us, it means we don't understand his love. First John 4 talks about that. It's a mark of immaturity and, and someone who makes bad decisions when they aren't rooted and grounded in God's love. Fear is not good, it's bad. So instead, I'm to trust the Lord. And you know what, I would ask you tonight, you know, maybe you're not facing tanks and a big army, but... Maybe you're facing a situation that's bigger than you and and your resources. It's okay to feel afraid. You know, that's normal. That's human. But you must make a choice to not stay afraid, like God tells Israel here. Others can encourage you. They can help you. They can remind you of God's promises. But no one else can make the choice to say, I'm not going to let fear rule me. And that was every Israeli soldier's personal responsibility. And it's mine as well as a Christian. Now, verse 2, we get to the priest's responsibility. Israel was a theocracy, so the nation ruled by God. So they looked to a priest for leadership and not an inspiration, not a king. So in verse 2, it says, And it shall be, when you have come near into the battle, that the priest shall approach and speak unto the people, and shall say unto them, Hear, listen, O Israel, you approach this day unto battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint, fear not, and do not tremble. Neither be you terrified because of them, for the Lord your God is he that goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. I get chills just reading that because I'm picturing the priest kind of coming out and he's rallying the people and there's all these big, huge Philistines out there and chariots, whatever. And he's saying, don't you look at them. You look at the Lord your God for he will fight for you and he will save you. And that's when I'm like, yeah. I mean, I just, wow. Don't let your hearts faint, become timid or weakened. You would not be a good soldier in that case. Don't fear them. It means to stand in awe of them. Instead, you stand in awe of the Lord. Don't tremble. It means to flee in fright. Don't worry about that. Don't run away. The Lord's fighting for you. He goes with you and he will save you. What's interesting is we know that all Christians are priests, right? The Bible says we're a kingdom of priests. I'm not a priest. I'm a pastor. You're a priest. You know, we're all priests in that sense. So this is my responsibility when someone I know is facing a situation that's bigger than them or their resources. I need to encourage them. I need to tell them that God is for them, that God loves them, and that he's fighting on their behalf, and that he will rescue them. That's your responsibility and my responsibility when someone we see that's a brother or sister in the Lord is afraid. And that is especially true for church leaders. Pastors should never be fear mongers. Never. Fear is not a motivation of the Lord. He never motivates us that way. You might say, yeah, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yes, and the Bible explains what that is. 
is. It says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So what does it mean to be a God-fearing person? It means you love what God loves and you hate what he hates. That's what it means to fear the Lord. It doesn't mean to tremble, be in terror of the Lord. God never motivates us through fear. Never in the scripture will we see that. God always desires us and he motivates us to trust him, to reach out to him, to step out and to take hold. And so, you know, I would ask you, do you encourage people when they're afraid or do you feed their fear? Fear is a powerful motivation tool, but it's not a biblical one. Now, verse five, we get to the officer's responsibility. And their primary responsibility was to determine who's exempt from the battle. Verse five, it says, and the officers shall speak unto the people saying, what man is there that has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. That would be so sad. What man is he that has planted a vineyard and he hasn't even eaten of it yet? He hasn't gotten a single grape. Let him also go and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle and somebody else eats his grapes. You don't want that. And what man is there that has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? In other words, he's engaged, but he hasn't married her yet. Well, let him go and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle and some other guy get the girl. Never want that. New homeowners, new business owners, and engaged men were exempt. They were exempt. Now, the officers here are not captains. They're not soldiers. These are civil magistrates, not military leaders. So this would be the, the civil magistrates, the civil leaders in your town. And if they knew that they were summoning up the army and they knew you had just started a new business or you were just got engaged or you just bought a new home, you know, and you'd be marching out there and they say, Bob, you can't go fight. You know, oh, I want to fight, man. It's my country. He said, no, Bob, you just did this. It's a new thing. You need to at least be able to enjoy it. The Lord will fight for us. We don't need you to go to battle. We'll be fine without you. Isn't that an interesting concept? Interesting concept. One other surprising group was exempt. Look at verse eight. And the officers shall speak further unto the people and they shall say, well, what man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return unto his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. God can do far more with a few who trust him fully than a crowd who's half-hearted. Far more. Israel's victory never depended upon superior military might. It always depended on their trust in the Lord. And the same is true for the church. Don't be discouraged if you have a Bible study or a meeting or you invite folks at work for a prayer time or whatever and it's just you and another coworker. Don't ever get discouraged if your meeting is small. Be encouraged when people are trusting God because that means he's in it. That means he's there. Now, the other role they had was not just to determine who was exempt, but to order the soldiers into organized groups. Verse nine, and it shall be when the officers have made an end of speaking unto the people, determining who's exempt, who's not, that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. So they'll divide them into groups, into squads, and then they'll send them out. Now, how is Israel to handle war with other nations? Verse 10, and when you come near unto a city to fight against it, then first proclaim peace unto it. This is a non-Canaanite city. We're gonna see that later in the chapter. Moses doesn't tell us that here, but we'll see that later. Later. So this would be a war of expansion, whereas Israel's taking land beyond the land of Canaan, beyond that area of the promised land. If they end up in a war with someone or if they are expanding, he says, you first go to a city and you proclaim peace, which again, God is not a warmonger and his people weren't to be either, but war does happen. And a peaceful resolution is always God's will when war happens. And so he says here, proclaim peace to it. And it shall be, if it make you an answer of peace, if they say, yeah, we'll have peace, and they open their gates, they let you come in, then it shall be that all the people that are found therein shall become tributaries unto you. It, it just means impressed labor. It's just normal spoils of war. Been that way until maybe the last 200 years in pretty much everywhere around the world. I mean, that's how they did it. So it says they'll become impressed labor for you. It doesn't mean they were slaves. That's a little bit different, but they would work for you. They didn't get to determine their own wages and their own businesses because you couldn't trust them. They were, they were the enemy. Verse 12, 
What do you do if they don't accept a peaceful resolution? Well, it says, if they make no peace with you, but will make war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God has delivered it into your hands, you shall smite every male thereof with the edge of the sword. But the women, the little ones, the cattle, and all that is in the city, even all the spoil thereof, you shall take unto yourself, and you shall eat the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given to you. Thus shall you do unto all the cities which are very far off. Again, not the Canaanites. Very far off from you, which are not of the cities of these nations, the Canaanites. The rules were to besiege the city, kill all the grown males, and take all the other living as spoils of war. I covered this in Leviticus, covered it in Numbers, so I'm not going to cover it at length again. There are reasons why the Lord had them do this. If you want to find that out, you know, listen to the study. I think it was numbers around Numbers 32 or so is where I kind of went into that in detail. Now, how was Israel to handle war with the Canaanites then? Verse 16. But of the cities of these people, which the Lord your God does give you for an inheritance, you shall save nothing alive that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them. And then he explains who they are so they don't kill anybody they shouldn't. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Why? So that they do not teach you to do after all their abominations, which they have done unto their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. If you spare them, they will corrupt you. And that's exactly what happened. Israel spared some of them, and they were corrupted. You say, but that's still kind of harsh, Will. Here's the beautiful truth. God gave them 400 years to repent. They didn't. That's why this judgment's upon them. But if any of those Canaanites still repented, even though God said this, he would have spared them. Say, how do you know that? Because of the ones he did spare. How about Rahab and her family? She said, I know that your God is the true God, and I ask that you'd spare my family. God did. And she became part of the line of the Messiah. The Gibeonites, they were spared as well because they feared the Lord. Now, they didn't do it the right way, but they feared the Lord. They knew they were done for. They knew it was God's judgment coming upon them, and they pled for mercy from the Israelites. Didn't tell them who they were. Didn't tell them they were Canaanites, but they pled for mercy, and God said, you honor the commitment you've made to the Gibeonites. God did spare any Canaanite who repented, and he would do so for all of them if they all repented, but most of them didn't. Most of them came out to fight. Now, in the last couple of verses here, we just have some quick rules concerning the conduct of Israel's armies during a siege. And it's kind of interesting. This is when you shall besiege a city, verse 19, a long time and making war against it to take it. You shall not destroy the trees thereof by forcing an ax against them, for you may eat of them and you shall not cut them down for the tree of the field is man's life to employ them in the siege. Only the trees which you know that they be not trees for food, you shall destroy and cut them down. And you shall build bulwarks, you know, siege engines against the city that makes war with you until it be subdued. Again, God is not for senseless destruction. You know, normally when you would come and make war against a place, you would just wipe everything out. It wouldn't even look anything like it did before. Like Sherman's march to Atlanta where he just burned everything. The Lord says, don't do that. God isn't for senseless destruction of life. His desire is to preserve life. That reminds me of the words of Jesus' disciples in Luke 9 when they went to a Samaritan village and, and they said, hey, Jesus is here. Can we stay here? And they're like, no, man, we've heard about Jesus. We don't want anything to do with him. And so John came to Jesus and he said, hey, Jesus, you want us to call fire down from heaven on these people because they didn't want you to stay in their hotel? And Jesus goes, where did you learn that? When have you seen me call fire down on anybody? I've been rejected before. I haven't killed anybody yet. He says, you don't know what spirit you're of. You don't know how wicked your heart is. You don't even know what prompted you to say that. You think it's because you're defending me. The reality is, you've got wickedness in your heart. And sadly, the church seems to me to have a scorched earth policy like those sons of thunder today. 
Let's choose to be a church that's more like Jesus. Amen? Remember how we said that everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus? Well, Jesus is our city of refuge. But he's even better than these cities of refuge. I want to read to you a quote from Warren Wearsby. He says this. He says, The man who fled in Israel did so because he wasn't guilty of murder. But we flee because we are guilty and deserve to be judged. No one has to investigate our case because we know we have sinned and we deserve God's punishment. Wow, isn't that heavy? But praise God that even though Jesus is the avenger of blood and has every right to judge us, he redeemed us instead. Abraham's blessing comes upon us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are our kinsman redeemer, Lord, that we're not our avenger of blood for the wickedness that we've done, but rather you rescued us by allowing all of that wrath to be poured out upon you. You became our kinsman redeemer, and we thank you for that, Lord. And so, Lord, help us to not have a scorched earth policy towards others who wrong us or others that do evil or even just the culture around us. But rather, Lord, help us to be shining examples, Lord, of your love and of your grace, of your servant heart of giving our lives away. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of Abraham that's been poured out upon us. And in him, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Through you, we are very blessed, Lord, and we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our God is not like any other. He never changes. He is a defender for the innocent and judge to the guilty. God judges in perfect righteousness and truth. The beauty of it all is that God is merciful as well. Even though we are deserving of judgment and death, God sent his son in our place to pay the penalty for a debt he did not owe. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.